Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. So, Will, do you have anything fun planned for this Saturday? Yeah, you know, I will be certainly keeping an eye on the Save the January 6th Political Prisoners rally being held outside of Congress. Things are a little, I don't know, a little tense in D.C., or at least we're being told we should feel tense. I don't know. I mean, this thing is uh, its outside of Congress. The fences are going back up, but I'm not feeling too too rough about it. This might end up being, uh, you know, kind of famous last words, but I'm really not seeing the kind of energy that we saw on January 6th, like anything approaching that. Okay, so I'm in Ohio right now, so I cannot physically be in Washington, D.C., or our nation's capital right now, see if I can palpably feel the tension that has been hyped up in certain headlines over the past few weeks. But just looking at this from afar, it seems like it could potentially be on track to becoming yet another dud. But just quickly explain to our audience what this is. This is organized by a former Trump 2016 official, a pretty low-level guy who was briefly on there named Matthew Brainerd. Yeah, this is Matt Brainerd. Matt Brainerd is clout-hungry, I would say, clout-starved as well. Matt Brainerd lacks the charisma of Enrique Tarrio, Proud Boys leader, other would-be election deniers. He's no Mike Lindell. He's no Michael Flynn. Certainly no Lynn Wood. He's not even a Sidney Powell. I mean, there's a guy out there who's just called the Professor's Record, who's like a business school professor. And that guy has, I think, more energy and followers than this guy. Yeah, he's certainly no Lynn Wood. I mean, you can't even put him in the same area code. Right, like the QAnon Lionel YouTuber has more charisma than this guy. Oh yeah, Lionel rocks with the Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. So here's the deal. This Matt Brander guy, he's got this group called, I think, Look Ahead America. And they actually had a rally outside the DC jail a month or two ago. And it was like a couple dozen people. So, I mean, this suggests to me that uh, when he's going to rally in front of Congress, there's no real evidence. Nothing's changed that would suggest that he would get more people than that. Particularly, there's kind of an interesting wrinkle here, which is every so often these rallies, they get the stink of a federal informant on them. And I'm not saying there are federal informants, but people within the movement believe they say that's a what they call a glowy rally. And, and glowy is a term for like an FBI informant. Why are they going with glowy? Yeah, because they say these guys online, they say the informants glow in the dark. And so they've just shortened it to glowies. Oh, that's so lame. So like on 4chan, if someone will leave a comment that's particularly provocative or in favor of violence, someone will say, like, this comment glows. They'll say, like, this rally glows. And so in this case, this rally has been pegged 
on the right as a, a glowy rally. And so people say, you know, it's gonna be all informants. This is a setup. And they have a point to the extent that anyone who actually did want to cause trouble would not go to Congress where they already have a fence up and where the Capitol police are not going to get caught with their pants down twice. They would go to a state Capitol or they would do it in a random place. They would go beat up some leftist protest. They're not going to do it again in Congress. So with that said, but Matt Brainerd, you know, he's trying to get his clout up. He's trying to do his thing. So he's got to convince everyone. He's like, he's posting these memes that are like the virgin glowy fearer where it's like, I'm staying home, like versus the Chad rally goer. It's like, I don't have the meme in front of me, but I think it was essentially like, I know this rally is filled with informants. I don't care. You know, <laughs> so he's really trying to get people out there. But, you know, the Proud Boys have denounced it. I was reading some of the main QAnon channels. They were saying no one go to this rally. So I tend to think nothing's going to happen. But then it only takes one or two nuts. I mean, it was only that one guy with the supposed bomb outside the Library of Congress just a few weeks ago. So something can always happen. But there is an added benefit to all these groups of saying no one go. The Proud Boys are saying anyone who goes is going to be drummed out of their fraternal order. And so the benefit is that if something does happen, they can say even if it's, you know, someone in the paraphernalia of a particular group, they can say, well, that's not us. This is a, this is a PSYOP. Okay. So the thing about Matt, or I guess at least one of the things about Matt, is a few weeks ago when the Daily Beast confronted him with our reporting, because we asked a bunch of heavy hitters in Trump land and people very close to former President Trump, if Trump or any of the other MAGA bigwigs around him or in his orbit, had been planning on attending this, knew anything about it, or were even invited to it by Brainerd or any of Brainerd's associates across the board. I don't think there was a single person who we asked, and we asked like a pretty good number of people about this in that orbit who said yes to any of it. We were met with a lot of, we have no idea what this is. We've never heard of it. No, we have not gotten an invite. We are not planning on attending. What the fuck is this? Why would I do this? And when we confirmed confronted him with that reporting, he responded with a semi-huffy, oh, what are they expecting? Like an invitation on letterhead? (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad he has that attitude. It's kind of like, I'll have my own party. Because here's the thing. This thing just has a stink on it. People don't think it's cool. I think it's not necessarily that all these Republicans disagree with the message that the January 6th rioters were maybe okay. They weren't doing anything wrong and they're political prisoners. I think it just has a, it has a bad vibe to it. And that's why no one wants to participate. Politico asked some kind of some classic types, you know, Paul Gosar, Louis Gohmert, Matt Gates, if they were going. And they said there was just no response. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two shows up. But in general, I think this thing is dead in the water, not because the the legend of January 6th doesn't live on, but because I think Matt Brainers just doesn't have the clout to pull this off. Okay, moving on to something that unfortunately has seemed a little bit more successful in terms of how nefarious they want to be. Well, you've been following what has been going on with several hospitals across the country who are just being inundated with all kinds of requests threats and death threats stemming from things that have to do with, of course, what else could it be? The nexus of ivermectin and the QAnon conspiracy theory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, so ivermectin, you knew it was going to come to this. So all these people, they're taking their ivermectin. And what's happening now is people are ending up in the hospital and they say, we're with COVID. And they say, where's my ivermectin? And the hospital says, well, I'm sorry, you're not a horse. You don't have heartworm. You know, you don't have tapeworms. We're not going to give you ivermectin. And then it becomes kind of one of these big sagas, um, sort of like a, a little different but sort of like a Terry Schiavo thing because it becomes this big kind of like public campaign that says the hospital should do this, the hospital should do that. So this is happening all over the country and in various iterations. But the one I want to focus on is this one in Chicago, this woman named Veronica Wolski, who I was aware of even before this is sort of a 
or was a sort of second or third tier QAnon personality. She was famous for in QAnon world. She she had this thing called I think like the QAnon Bridge or the Great Awakening Bridge, and she would hang Q signs over what they used to call during the Iraq War freeway blogging. She would hang signs about QAnon over it, and so she knew Michael Flynn. She met him a couple times or at least once. She I believe made a QAnon quilt that was auctioned off at one of these Q conferences I went to. So this was a, a person who was kind of a known quantity in Q world. So she she gets COVID. And, you know, I should also say she was a big COVID denier. She would record herself. She was like, oh, you know, you got to wear a mask in this store. And she put on like a Batman mask. She was not a big fan of, of the COVID common sense. Apparently, she didn't get vaccinated. And she ends up in the hospital with COVID. And so the deal was this then becomes a big QAnon thing. And so on Telegram, the, the favorite QAnon social media app, they're posting, give her her ivermectin, call the hospital, get her ivermectin. The cause is embraced by Lynn Wood. And, you know, the hospital starts getting all these the hundreds of calls, all these death threats, all this kind of stuff. OK, but just to be clear, this Veronica Wolski figure, she died, right? Like she is no longer with us. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so this is a weeks long campaign. And then Sunday night, Lynn Wood was saying on Telegram, he's like, we have a, an ambulance ready to take her to another hospital with a doctor and they're going to give her ivermectin. The cops were called. People were doing this whole protest. And they were sort of, there was this woman, they were like, well, let's go see her. This idea that you can kind of just barge into a hospital and just start kind of freestyling your uh, medical treatments did not work. And so basically the hospital said no. And in fact, she died shortly thereafter, uh, very early on Monday morning. So this is yet another data point in the ongoing trend of prominent or fairly prominent or low-level celebrity COVID denier or right-wing talk radio host who is bloviating against the vaccines and against masks, saying the coronavirus is a hoax or whatever. She is one of the latest in the long strand of people in that genre who have succumbed to COVID-19 specifically. That's right. And, and you know, in her case, because there was this whole give her ivermectin thing, um, now her death, she's become a martyr. And they're saying this was medical murder. Those are Lynn Wood's words. We've got to seek justice. He's urging his followers to go to war. And at the same time that she was dying, almost the same time, there was a guy out in uh, Washington State who had become sort of a similar crusade to get ivermectin uh, for the, the people out there who, you know, are often the same people you see brawling with left-wing demonstrators in Portland. And so we're seeing this growth of these, um, these, I guess, ivermectin martyrs, frankly. And I would say it's not great for the healthcare system and for the doctors and hospitals that are suddenly being deluged with these threats. Okay, but at this point, how graphic are the death threats actually get, getting? Has anybody shown up at a hospital yet and tried to do harm to anybody? I, I mean, I, I know a lot, a lot of this is sickening and must be at the very, very least a gigantic headache for the hospital personnel who, on top of all the other like horror and death they have to deal with, now have to deal with this. But how dicey has this been getting recently? Right. I mean, so, you know, obviously the police were called before. There were there were some threats we know the night before uh, Wolski died to her hospital. But we obviously have not seen violence at this point. I think the larger thing here is this way that hospitals are becoming this kind of COVID culture war battleground. I mean, you can think in the first months of the pandemic when people would go and try to enter the hospital wards while filming and saying, you know, see here, I'm in the lobby. You know, it, there's not a ton of COVID people just dying in the lobby. Right. And everything's fine. Like I, my ankles aren't literally 
like steeped in blood right now. So everything must be okay. Yeah. I mean, right, right. So it was called the, the film, your hospitals movement. And now we're seeing this thing where someone from, you know, Lynn Wood over in South Carolina can start this whole movement that some random hospital in Chicago needs to give one particular patient ivermectin. And so, so the, turning these hospitals into these political battlegrounds. And the other thing I would say about hospitals is that the new thing, particularly after Veronica Wolski's death is this idea that there was this other QAnon guy who died named Robert David Steele, who, who similarly was supposedly denied ivermectin in Florida and died. And, and he was like a big QAnon figure. And so now we're seeing this idea that the hospitals are killing people that they're saying that this is what the QAnon people believe. Or alternately, that if you go to a hospital, you're not going to get the treatment that you want, which being ivermectin in particular. And so now there's this whole movement um, I've been seeing just over the past few days of like, stay out of the hospital. If you get COVID, don't go to the hospital because that's why people die of COVID. It's not because of uh, it's a genuine virus and a problem. So this actually is kind of tracking closely to the plot of Shutter Island. I- <laughs> Uh, can you expand on that for me? Spoiler alert. It turns out that all the people who are pushing this are delusional and the hospital is, in <laughs> fact, not killing people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we're now sort of reaching the next stage of this, which is just stay out of the hospital if you get COVID, this new argument, which is not great. Wasn't there a leaked email or something like that recently that people on the nutty online are seizing upon to say, look, this is proof that the hospitals are just inflating the COVID numbers or something like that. Right. I mean, there are all these things out of various hospitals and then people are seizing on them, various internal policy documents from hospitals. And they're saying, see, the hospitals are in on it. They want to inflate the COVID numbers. So it's not great that it's progressing to this next level of, of stay out of the hospital. The reason I ask you that is because there's this dual track of conspiracy theory mongering that the hospitals are inflating the death toll, but they're also killing people at the same time? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, no one said it ever had to make sense, right? But among other things, well, you've pointed out before that along with how corrosive and uh, uh, actively destructive this stuff is, there is obviously big money to be made in it. Uh, the latest book from this person named Dr. Judy Mikovits, if I'm pronouncing Plandemic. it. Plandemic. Yes. Of Plandemic Infamy. Plandemic will be with us forever. This is more than a year after Plandemic came out and blew up on Facebook. You may remember Plandemic being kind of the first, the founding document of COVID trutherism. She's still at it. Right. And very recently, Dr. Judy had what, according to BookScan, was documented as the 14th best-selling book in all of the continental United States with roughly 12,000 copies sold. This is something who I think are Uh, the average person or even our average listener who might think they're more steeped in this stuff than the average person may not actually know who Dr. Judy is. And yet beneath the surface of American culture, she is raking it in. And I'm sure a lot of people like her are doing the exact same thing while they're spreading this absolutely gore caked nonsense. Yeah. I mean, look, this is the bestseller list the New York Times won't tell you about. So I'm in the the book industry myself these days. Trust the plan coming out March 2022 available for pre-order. So I was reading like kind of who's moving units, as they say. And I saw this book among your more typical books. I saw I was like, Judy Mikovits. Oh, no. And yeah, I mean, she's back. She's from Plandemic. This was a viral Facebook video and, and on other platforms as well. That was really this very slickly produced. And it was, it was sort of one of the original kind of 
COVID denialism videos. And it just went huge. And so, yeah, she's still at it. She's still, you know, selling, writing one of the top selling books in the country. It's a relatively new release. So this sort of reminds me of in terms of the way that books kind of can illustrate to you subcultures and how big they are. I mean, this kind of reminds me of a few years ago when this pro QAnon book was in the top 10 on the Amazon charts. And these are kind of like, you know, obviously these charts can be gamed. There can be different things going on. But it's sort of a bracing moment where you say, whoa, there are a lot of people out there who are, you know, spending money, which is obviously a very, it's a little bigger than doing a retweet or something. You know, they're committing uh, some cash to this movement. Right. And it kind of flies in the face of all of these conservative pundits and writers who I would see trying to get in your mentions on Twitter and elsewhere for months back in like, particularly the early and mid-Trump era, where they would say you were covering things like QAnon and stuff like this, and it was a completely fringe thing. You're blowing it up. This does not represent where the conservative or right-wing grassroots are right now in America. And it just kind of underscored how much of a bubble that they themselves had on purpose almost secluded themselves in because they were just refusing to see that this was actually a thing. It's not like only 2,000 people in America believe this shit. Yeah, no, it's a real thing out there. Okay, now it's time for Daily Beast Couples Therapy, where we keep track of our favorite relationships. And I feel like when I think of a pair that's bound to be together, despite how tumultuous things can be, I think of Fox News and MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell, the man of the MyPillow, the man of the Giza cotton sheets. Um, But, you know, things fell apart with them a little earlier this year because Fox would not play Mike's craziest ads. But Swin, I think you've got some developments here on this relationship. What's going on? Okay, well, something that hasn't been reported yet is that... That after late July, when top Trump ally and on and off Trump advisor Mike Lindell, who is, of course, this podcast's preferred pillow magnate in the MAGA universe, in late July, Mike angrily announced to various media outlets that he was effectively pulling his My Pillow ads from the Fox News and Fox Business airwaves immediately in protest, essentially, of Fox's decision to decline to run his ad leading up to his South Dakota cyber symposium, which our listeners probably remember as the thing that Lindell promised proved that massive fraud conspiracy ended up swinging the election from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Obviously, the cyber symposium imploded in several different ways and was able to unearth zero evidence of, of the sort. I'm sure that's heartbreaking and shocking to our listeners. Anyway, So I wanted to follow up with Mike because I hadn't spoken to him in a while, and I just realized that there had been no follow-up to the alleged breakdown of that relationship. Even at the time when he said it, it seemed to raise an eyebrow on my face that, okay, I mean, he's saying he's killing the relationship right now, but is he really killing the relationship? So yesterday, on Monday, September 13th, when I was speaking to him, I asked him, have you made any new overtures to Fox News or Fox Business to try to get ads back on the air? Or has there been any outreach the other way around? And lo and behold, he told us that in fact, yes, starting a week or two after he made that announcement in late July, he actually went back to Fox to try to get a ad on the air 
for his attempt at a social media network called Frank's Speech. Before I get into what these ads were. Frank's Speech is a dump, by the way. Getter owns compared to Frank's Speech. The thing I kind of want to establish here is we get into this Frank's Speech thing. So this is Mike Lindell's ostensible social network. I still can't figure out how to log on to this darn thing. But like, do you have an account? I've tried. I can't get in. What is Frank's Speech? It's both a social network, a, a concept, a dream, because often it's just like a streaming video of Mike Lindell. So, but here's the thing. I suspect Fox News is looking at this and they're like, this looks low rent. Now, the man yelling about pillows, that that, that fit with our brand. But Frank's speech is, is, is a weird spam operation and they want nothing to do with it, I would imagine. I, I'm just spitballing here. Okay, so this is what Lindell told the Fever Dreams pod yesterday. And I quote, my pillow is done with them. My pillow is done. And he's referring to Fox and Fox business. But what he's leaving the door open for at least for now, is a week or two, according to him, after he announced that he was pulling my pillow from Fox News Airwaves, he said he went back to Fox with an ad for the Frank Speech social media site. But within that ad, he specifically told me that the ad says that you can get exclusive deals at my store and also my pillow in the ad content. So he's kind of doing this uh, kind of workaround where he says, oh yeah, I'm refusing to grace the airways of Fox News with my my pillow content, but I am trying to get an ad or two for Frank's speech on there, which, and it, within that ad, it includes basically a redirect to my pillow products. So, I mean, is it a my pillow ad? Is it not a my pillow ad? I'll leave that up for our listeners to decide. The man's got to have his pride. It's kind of like he's sneaking it on there. Here's my theory, right? It's crazy to me. Like, we know that Fox News was a huge part of their ad revenue was pillows, right? If I'm like Dan Bongino, if I'm Sean Hannity, if I'm one of these guys, I'm getting my own pillow company and I'm spamming Fox News with pillow ads. I think there's an <laughs> opening here for someone who is willing to buy Fox News ads. The audience loves seeing pillows, you know, just kind of sneak in there. <laughs> well, why don't we try that? Fever pillow. <laughs> You know, I don't think we could do that to Mike. He's bringing these exclusives to us. I, I, I wouldn't want to stab him in the back like that. But I do think the pillow market, I, I think, is wide open on there. Well, the thing is, according to Mike, the new ad that he tried to pitch them for Frank's speech, uh, they rejected it, I believe, because they didn't want anything to do with something that had to do with the cyber symposium or alleged massive election fraud, yada, yada, yada. So he goes again a little bit after that to try to get a third ad on the air, which he said he took out any references to the election or yada, yada, yada. It's just about Frank's speech and my store and my pillow. So Fox News comes back to him on, he claims, Monday, September 13th, and simply say that they did not like the content of Frank's speech. And that's the reason why they're refusing to put his ads on the air right now. So he's kind of in this weird space where he's denouncing Fox News as this leviathan that isn't pro-Trump enough for him and is not brave enough to talk about vaccines or the 2020 election the way that he is. But yet he is still beseeching them to try to get his ads on the air even though he made this big stink about no longer advertising my pillow with them anymore. And he tells us that he is currently in the process of trying to create a fourth ad that he hopes is Fox News and Fox Business Friendly to try to test them to see if they'll rekindle this ad revenue marriage once again. I like this thing where it's like Mike is in the lab cooking up these ads where he's like, maybe this will get past the censors at Fox News. And then he's just telling you, he's like, hey, Swin, here's my plan to fool Fox News. I mean, you can't do it like that, man. Well, well, we'll see. We'll have to see if he pulls it off. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now let's get our audience acquainted with our next guest, who has generously taken time out of his busy schedule today shooting a new movie to sit down with the Fever Dreams crew. Today's guest is Josh Rubin, a writer, director, and actor who is a veteran of the comedy website College Humor. But in the years since, Josh has risen to become one of the American film industry's most promising budding auteurs, specifically in the field of comedy horror. His 2020 film, Scare Me, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, is described by Rotten Tomatoes as, quote, smart, well-acted, and suitably chilling. His new movie, Werewolves Within, which was released this summer, was similarly met with high levels of critical acclaim and is now available to rent via streaming on demand. You can follow Josh on Twitter.com, at Josh Rubin. And if you're interested in seeing some of the most cleverly written and twistedly funny horror being produced today, I highly, highly recommend you go watch Josh's movies. Recalling my way earlier stint as a film critic, I will say that his directorial and writing style reminds me of if you put Diablo Cody and Edgar Wright into a blender, mixed in some tequila, and then served with a rim of salt. The other voice you'll be hearing interviewing our guests will be producer Jesse Cannon. Josh, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thank you for being here with us on the pod today. Oh my gosh, that was such an intro. Thank you. I appreciate it. What high compliments. Let's see if you're as good as podcasting as you are at directing. We'll see. So what I wanted to start with was just because some of our listeners, or those maybe unfamiliar with your filmography at the moment, let's take a trip back in time. You cut your teeth, or at least some of your teeth, at College Humor. Um, and it was funny because when I was talking to you on the phone for the first time, I did not know that. And when you mentioned you had once worked at College Humor, my mind immediately flashed back to this sketch that College Humor put out back when I was in college that you starred in called Grease Dilemma. Can you explain to our listeners what that was? And all I'll say is that I highly encourage you guys to look it up on YouTube. I still think about it to this day. I think I saw it, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Yes. If I can articulate this properly, Grease, which is one of my favorite films, they're singing Summer Lovin' and it gets down to the boys describing, I think it was Danny describing what he was going to do to Sandy. Can she get me a friend or make out under the dock or basically the more uh, sexually charged innuendo. All of his guy friends stop the song and call him out and basically call him out on being rapey. <laughs> it's the line in that song that is kind of like turned heads for years 
years now when you watch it in more of a modern context where it's like, did she put up a fight? Yes, that was the term. It was, did she put up a fight? <laughs> did she put up a and fight? Then, and then Zuko whoa, and everybody whoa. is like, wait, what What the fuck? Whoa, Does that happen to you, Kaniki? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kaniki, right. Yeah, whoa, whoa, what? Why would you say that? Yeah, exactly. It was cool. It was such a, what a wonderful experience. What A film school for me, I essentially made, you know, thousands of, if I wasn't in, I was directing. If I wasn't directing, I was writing or co-writing thousands of sketches, mostly about boobs and beer and video games. But that was one of the ones that actually, you know, we tried to get as pointed as we could. But specifically from an anti-sexual assault. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So you mentioned that was sort of a film school of sorts, obviously in the years or the intervening decade, you've kind of dove head and hands first into horror comedy. I want to start by focusing on your movie, which was just released this summer called Werewolves Within. Can you walk our audience through just the elevator pitch of what this movie is in case they haven't seen it? Obviously, I highly recommend you all rent or stream it today. Can you walk us through what was the inspiration for coming up with this movie? And I know it's based on a video game, but it has an underlying socioeconomic and political subtext that I'm not sure was in the video game. Can you walk us through that? It certainly wasn't in the video game because the video game is basically mafia, but a bunch of like old crones and weird um, Dracula-esque medieval characters sitting around a bonfire manipulating and undermining one another, which is, I feel, very uh, sociopolitically and economically relevant to, to today. The idea was actually conceived, um, the story adapted by the video game was actually conceived by writer Mishnah Wolf, who brilliantly conceived of the story of small town residents who have basically their simmering resentments for one another come to a boil while snowed in at the local lodge while a creature is killing them off one by one, wreaking havoc and bringing out the worst in them. And being from a small town, being from a, I don't want to say a desolate Catskills town because it wasn't quite desolate, but certainly when I was a kid, it was certainly more far removed from uh, more progressive areas. It hit quite close to home. I know pretty narrow-minded folk who live up in the sticks. There was a liberal town, you know, Woodstock, New York, that's more or less where I grew up in, but some of those smaller surrounding towns have very different political interests and outlooks than certainly I did growing up. And it was really, I don't know, kind of cathartic to go back there and bring in my my liberal and queer creative troupe to uh, tell this story about, I don't want to say red America and blue America, but essentially about these archetypes sort of, you know, going head to head and essentially disagreeing about this fiscal opportunity in this oil pipeline being built through their town. And so you went there to film on location in the area you grew up in? Yeah, it, it takes place in the fictional town of Beaverfield, Vermont. I sort of selfishly presented the Hudson Valley um, because, you know, it's where my parents are. And I figured on the weekends I could have mom's lasagna and crying in my um, homeroom pillow <laughs> if it wasn't going well. But also because Beaverfield, even though it's Vermont in the film, is very much like some of the small towns that I grew up in. And Fleischman's New York, where they actually shot Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, that was largely where the film took place or where we, where we actually shot, as well as some part in uh, Phoenicia, New York as well. But I knew kids who weren't unlike some of the more, I guess, uncouth characters in the film. And I think part of that is simply because, you know, not all of them had the sort of privilege and experience to be able to walk around the West Village every once in a while or see a gay person or see someone who, you know, wears their 
religious beliefs on their on their sleeve or sort of you know more open minded folks it was it was kind of wonderful to you know blow that open without hopefully being too ham fisted and making it about the maga idiots of of the world you know i i think especially between scare me and werewolves i think that you know my personal politics my passion about where we stand as society is less to do with where people fall on the political spectrum and more about like can i present crass people getting their comeuppance or rather getting what they deserve <laughs> But oftentimes in the context of like viscera spraying everywhere with the specter of a werewolf or a weir man. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was Guillermo del Toro who once said that essentially all horror is political, even if it doesn't itself intend to be. I think I'm lightly paraphrasing him uh, right now. And as you've pointed out, and I do agree with it, you, they're like the George Romero's of the world. Who, yeah. Their movies are explicitly political. Like if you see mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead and you don't see 1960s America and the civil rights movement and Vietnam and all the horror that came with it, you're obviously not watching the movie that the director intended for you to watch. But your stuff, and feel free to disagree with me if you'd like, is a little bit different because it's not really explicit in terms of how political it is, is running through its veins, but a little bit more lightly uh, than the fare of some other writer-directors in the political horror genre. And you were starting to get into this a little bit, but what role do your politics actually play in the things that you are writing and directing? I'm guessing you're not trying to shove anybody's face in anything, but when you are thinking of a werewolf movie or a cabin in the woods movie, how does that strike you as, if it does, like it does with some directors, as somehow inherently political? Well, I mean, I'll just say, you know, from personal experience and just being a creator, my interests lie in more holding a mirror up to people in society, regardless of where they fall in a political spectrum. And I don't know, I, I get, I really do get a kick out of the, whether the narrow-minded, the prejudiced, the sexist, being the raw nerve, insecure people that they are. I get really excited to exhibit that insecurity, um, or at the very least, to terrify people who frankly deserve to be terrified. Maybe it's private justice. Maybe that's, you know, like as Mishnah says, um, about werewolves within that was that that's such a um it's such the underlying spirit of of that film people taking uh justice into their own hands and i think in, in my filmmaking as far as my politics are concerned it's less so much about my views of the political scale of it all but more about saying like hey like don't be shitty and if you are shitty like shitty people are gonna get the karmic repercussions of being shitty can i say shitty we'll see oh yes yes Okay, wonderful. So, Josh, you dabbled in the past in like more infotainment. I saw you worked on Adam Rune's everything. A lot of people are starting to say that it seems like the audience is growing a little bit numb to that type of injection of politics into their brain. And do you see going more narrative like you have here and kind of coding it into a movie being more effective? I'll say this. I think we're all a bit, if not desensitized, traumatized by the last, you know, four years and 16 months or whatever it is, where, you know, our noses were kind of rubbed in crassness on the daily. Life was quite bleak. And Ari Aster and Jordan Peele had some of the best and arguably more bleak leaning films of the time that are billion dollar successes for a reason. And now I think what I'm hearing and what I'm excited about, and believe me, I, I I love a bleak, like sort of straight horror film. I'm not calling Get Out bleak, for example, but um, you can argue that with Hereditary, although quite a dark comedy, if you will, is 
People are excited for horror to be fun again. Twitter lit up about Malignant, which I haven't yet seen, but I know is quote unquote bonkers, cuckoo, banana birds, crazy. People are excited for a ride again and excited to have fun and sort of escape into, you know, into the horror of it all. That's why I love Edgar Wright. It's also why I love making werewolves within. It's forget about the bygone, the Trump era, but, you know, it felt like Clue. It felt like hot fuzz. It felt fun. It was reminiscent of arachnophobia. Films, you know, the Amblin era films that were sort of escapist, fun and funny, but never were sort of caught trying to be funny. And that's a, that's a wave I'd like to be a part of. You know, right after Mr. T was elected, not the cool one, <laughs> I went immediately and I wrote a story about a woman. Basically, I was inspired by this article I read about this woman in Brownsville, Pennsylvania, who was like, oh, I think that the actual title of the article was finally someone who thinks like me. And she was identifying the toxic rhetoric. Was this a story in the Washington Post by chance? Yes, it was. About this woman who essentially was identifying with or seeing herself in the toxic rhetoric of these awful rallies and, and what would it be like if if she was um, sort of obsessing over this character in a dead zone type way. But I don't think people <laughs> necessarily want to see that. I like that idea. I like the dark comedy element of it all. It was cathartic to write that piece. But I'm just as excited to, just as all horror films are political in some way, which I think is true. I'm excited to blow out characters on a universal level that are either good or bad or whatever they are in between and put them in a position where they are wholly uncomfortable or where they fall viciously from grace, but where it's not so ham-fisted, where you at least, you know, laugh along the way. That's that's the dream. Well. I'm a big fan, believe it or not, of talking about unproduced screenplays. So how you wrote a screenplay that was basically in some way about the Trump era, or at least a sort of voting archetype of it, but it was a horror comedy movie. What was the working title of it? And what does this woman who is based upon this real life person who was profiled in the Washington Post, what is their journey like? And I mean, feel free not to spoil it entirely in case you ever turn it into an actual film. Well, first, this doesn't spoil anything. I called it Annie only to quickly realize um, that Annie is a musical. <laughs> I, <forget to> <laughs> and I already um, went through that with Scare Me, sharing the name with a um, very much boobs, beer and campfire type Scare Me rather than a uh, a cash Chris Red vehicle. But without giving anything away, you know, maybe with the intention of someday making it, the character arc of it is unfortunately relevant still today. It is about someone who is so extremely lonely, she found and pedestaled someone crass and who spoke to the worst part of her. And we all have bad parts that think bad things that you don't say in public, you know, cancelable tweets we've all drafted. And it's about someone who is so tragically lonely. So when I think of this character, let's call her Annie, which then changed you know, two more times, I think of someone who, like these people in the message boards, the QAnon of it all, really comes down to it. Like if you listen to, I think it was Rabbit Hole, the New York Times um, podcast about misinformation, where it all comes from, Pizzagate and everything. What it boils down to is that people just are so happy to have someone to talk to, to be heard. And if it means that at its worst, in the darkest corners, you can find someone who identifies with your anger, well, look what happens. You get this kind of like slingshot snap of reaction from this rattled side of our demographic that are angry. Everyone has a right to be angry. There's a lot to be angry about where we are at <laughs> sociopolitically and beyond. Financially, inflation is insane. It's five bucks for an apple now. That was what inspired me 
most. I, I tear up thinking about that type of person who this person in particular, the husband ignored her. The kid was her daughter had turned her back on her because of her beliefs, because of her kind of crass behavior, because of her you know, mild racism, whatever it was. And um, she truly had no one to talk to I mean down to people ignoring her in the drugstores when she was asking a question. Wait, is this the real life character or the you character? Oh, no, no, this is, this is my fictional, my fictional protagonist. Got it. So, but yeah, what it boils down to is I think you have to find the humanity in these characters. I think, in fact, I'll all say I'm positive they are all lonely and insecure and want to be heard. And that is what they're looking for in the message boards, in the Facebook community message boards, in the misinformation rabbit hole of it all. It's why they get on, you know, Martyr or whatever the hell the new uh, platform is for people to talk shit. So in your fictional universe, does this Trump voting archetype end up going on a murder spree or like a slumber party massacre <laughs> fest or anything like that? Nothing, nothing to, uh, too terribly violent, but there are drastic sort of swings that are made. And then, you know, I made sure that as this kind of requiem for a dream-esque obsession grew, that once she did have her moment when she ran into the, you know, the Stephen King dead zone, Martin Sheen candidate of it all, the, the proverbial crass Trump type, he ignores her. He's terse with her because of course he is, because they're all celebrities. They're all narcissists, sociopathic to a degree. And it's like, it doesn't matter that if, you know, you rush up to them, despite their uh, security that you're asking for autographs and saying, oh my God, you think just like I do, I admire you, I look up to you. Yeah, the two-headed snake tragic side of it all that really also gets me kind of giddy. It's so awfully fractured and makes for rich characters. Who, uh, if you had your druthers, who would be the actress to play this woman? Well, <laughs> that's funny you asked that. You know, originally I wanted to pull a Tilda Swinton and Suspiria, don the prosthetics and do it myself because um, I wanted it to be so awfully heinous and almost like an art film. But then I thought, no, you should probably give someone like Sarah Paulson, Margaret Martindale, or Anne Dowd the opportunity. I don't know, it could go on and on. Totally. And this almost reminds me of this Onion piece from mid-2016, obviously before Trump was even elected president, titled, I'm a Trump-era conservative, says horrifying man 25 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> Onion is oftentimes ahead of its time. This but this absolutely did not take 25 years. It barely took 25 months. In fact, it took significantly less than that yeah. when they published this. But was there any particular moment from 2015 and on that, that you saw on TV or you read about that you sort of stared at beyond this Washington Post profile? where you thought to yourself, oh my God, this is a horror comedy, except it's the leader of the free world, then Donald J. Trump doing it in real life. It was the Charlottesville Tiki Torch March in 2017, where the dark comedy of it all are all these white people that decided we're all going to wear the same white polos. And I imagined all of them going to Kmart and running out of tiki torches and beg borrowing and stealing if they couldn't find a white polo or a <laughs> tiki torch that they had to like beg and borrow from their neighbors, moms or dads and the tiki torches would disappear from the neighborhoods around the, the white people pools. That was the probably the first like real horror comedy, like the world is turning moment, at least like as early back as I can remember, it's been turning for a long time. I'm, you know, I was in, fresh out of high school. 
after, you know, when 9-11 happened. But yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that was like a truly horror comedy, like true, true horror. That's an awful thing that happened. They all found each other. But the comedic, the ridiculous comedic kind of farcical element of they all like what went into the planning dress code and propage of it all. How fucking pathetic. Right. And there was this was a little bit different for me, but there was a point during the 2020 general election where it was just Donald Trump and Joe Biden, two elderly white guys just jabbering at each other on the national stage and Americans having to decide, okay, which one of them are we going to give or give back the nuclear launch codes to and have be the most powerful and or destructive person on the face of the fucking planet. And it just struck me like that whole election in so many different ways was, if not the content, the spirit of the 1988 John Carpenter movie, They Live, Oh my God. <laughs> Every time I kept thinking, okay, can I take on or put on my special sunglasses right now while watching this fucking election? <laughs> oh my God, absolutely. It's just that now it's like you put on the glasses to find out who's a Karen. <laughs> you know, God bless Kirk Daniels for making a Karen movie. But it's like now you can just tell often when they wear flaps. It is such a Carpenter movie. And a piece of me kind of realized, you know, even, even after Biden went, will you just shut up, man? And then just like a good Catholic just put his chin to his chest like, Oh, shame on me. He flogged himself like a character in the Da Vinci Code after that, no doubt. I wonder when it'll end because it does seem like it's been relentless, like since, you know, 9 11. It's like, oh man, I just wish we could listen to Chumba Wumba on the short bus again. <laughs> right. And also, you as a former sketch comedy guy, I don't know how you feel about this, but I still think it's a moral atrocity that Joe Biden, for conspicuously lengthy period of time, has not been featured as a character on something like, say, Saturday Night Live. I know they had the Jim Carrey thing for a while, but after that, they sort of dropped it after he was elected. Like, of course, he's not Donald Trump. Nobody is. But there is this dark humor that's already come with the Biden presidency so far. It's like, how are you not lampooning that every week if you're claiming to be a sketch comedy show? Yeah, I'm curious about that. I, I haven't caught up with SNL in a bit. I think maybe since the election. And then I was just like, I don't know if I can see the, you know, Alec Baldwin of it all every week. I have no idea. I don't know why. It's such a dark time. I mean, I can't imagine getting there every week and trying to go like, how can we possibly make light of what's going on now? I mean, thank God for like Jen Saki's Saki bombs, which I think are just so rad. And, you know, Alexandria Cortez taking a, you know, Instagram live. There's comedy in all corners of it on top of the Mitch McConnell's of it all that we are surrounded by his level villains. And there's got to be comedy mind from that. But yeah, I just, I really don't know. You were mentioning QAnon earlier and the other rap conspiracy theories and the vast range online that has proliferated in all kinds of new ways over the past four or five, six, however many years. And for me, I, I was sort of surprised, but also not really surprised that over the past few years, there hasn't been a good quintessential horror or comedic satire film about things like the QAnon phenomenon. I guess one of the reasons I'm not entirely surprised there hasn't been, or at least half of me isn't surprised, is because I've always felt best movies made about a political subject or a political era are in a way not actually about them. Like Armando Iannucci's In the Loop is to me the best movie ever made about the Iraq war. The words Iraq or Al-Qaeda or Saddam or War on Terror never, never come up once. One of my favorite Iraq occupation movies is the horror film 28 Weeks Later, which obviously mm -hmm. does not actually bring up the war on terror, Afghanistan or Iraq at all. And 
I've always wondered, like, okay, if somebody is going to make the quintessential film, whether it's in the context of the horror genre or not, about Donald Trump or the Donald Trump presidency, it is somehow not going to actually be about Donald Trump. Because if you're making a movie just about Trump, like a dramatized biopic or something, it's not going to be the definitive movie about Donald Trump. I mean, I think they already made the QAnon Trump movie when when Carpenter made They Live. I think you could easily remake it today and play it from the, you know, Roddy Piper as being a part of the Pizzagate believer message board where it's like, no, there are dungeons and also Hillary Clinton is a lizard person and have denial, denial denial, denial until like 10 Cloverfield Lane, you know, midpoint of act three moment when everything, when the shit just hits the fan, when it's like, nope, aliens are real. Lizard people are real. Pizzagate is real. Trump is Rambo. (laughs) I mean, just like you could absolutely redo it today. Although, you know, I dare say we don't, even if it's all fiction, because it's like, well, then it'll make them all. The takeaway from that will be a bit suspicious. <laughs> I agree. I was just kind of sounding that out. I pictured it being like kind of those really awfully produced, like religious kind of Hallmark level movies, where it's just like, you know, there's a dog and Jesus and it's like, you know, everybody's white. It would be like one of those, but just like poorly produced with makeup bought at a spirit Halloween or something. Right. And the far and away the best, movie on 9-11 and its aftermath with the global war on terror is Starship Troopers by Paul Verhoeven. And that came out in the 90s. So yeah, you're right. Maybe maybe we just have to look to cinema's past to find the definitive Donald Trump or Trumpism movie. Right. And now Casper Van Dien would be old enough to play the heroic Trump type. You know, He would be such a good Donald Trump type. Absolutely. Born to play it. <laughs> so is there anything else you're working on or have envisioned over the past few years that is politically inclined horror that you're just dying to get off the ground, but for whatever reason, haven't had, haven't been able to yet. Yeah, I'm not done impaling men who go on power trips, sexual or otherwise. I'm not looking to make a, a Weinstein revenge film necessarily, but it would be nice to see maybe some interpretation of the power tripping Silicon Valley Uber executive types, maybe of yesteryear, who um, take advantage of their women co- colleagues and coworkers, take credit for their work, perhaps maybe in the engineering world or something. But um, I'm brewing up something like that. But I, I I don't know, I really identify maybe it was because I was more of a, an empathetic kind of a feminine side a human being who's short and odd and was certainly more so in uh, elementary school. I identify with the women in my life and with women characters more. So I'm excited to um, be a part of any project where I can watch a woman or a marginalized person kind of put those who've put them through the ringer through the worst kind of ringer and come out on top because it's just it's just catharsis. I'm saying that as a, a Caucasian 38-year-old male who you know knows what it's like to be bullied as a kid and I think in, fantasizes about that under, underdog uh, hero sort of a situation or revenge situation, but I'd like to do it, you know, being who I am again, a Caucasian 38 year old filmmaker, my responsibility is to continue to cast and raise up marginalized actors, talent who may not have otherwise had the opportunity to, to do on camera what hopefully I'd give them an opportunity to do. That's that's the position I'm in and that's what I'm going to, um, to, to vow to continue to do. Right. And it kind of reminds me of, I, I forget which horror filmmaker or movie guy said this, and I'm lightly paraphrasing here, where if you look at the people who make all these classic and gory and grotesque horror movies, they are almost across the board, anti-war, 
liberal, very gentle and compassionate and just normal human beings on a personal level. The people you have to fear aren't the guys who are putting the splatter on the big screens that the moral majority once thought was corrupting America's youth. It's the people who in the suburbs, the neighbors who are interviewed by the evening news always say, God, he just seemed like the nicest guy. (laughs) (laughs) And he made this movie called Jesus Dog for Hallmark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Josh, on that note, we got to get going, but thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Come back anytime. And to play you off, Jesse, can we play a clip from Grease Dilemma? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What? Whoa. What? Come on, Thunderbirds, what I say? Oh, is that something that happens to you, Kaniki? Like, they put up a fight? That is not cool. Guys, I was messing with you. Come on. <laughs> For this week's installment of our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, our roving correspondent, William Summer, is going to introduce us to this new electronic box that is being sold by various right-wing kooks in the country. And the most fascinating thing about me is, well, two things. First of all, the name of the box. And second of all, it's an electronic box that they're claiming will change your life and change the world. But I'm not sure any of us have been able to figure out what this thing actually does. Will, please delve into the intricacies of this electronic box. Yeah, so this is, um, here on Fresh Hell, I like to bring some truly twisted stuff. But but what if there was, I told you, there was a $100 box that I don't know what it is. It's kind of like a black mirror thing. It sits in your house and you'll find out what it does. So here's the deal. It's called it's called the Cucks. And this is initially why I bring it to the audience. It's called, now it's written Q-U-X, but it's pronounced Cucks. And in fact, now that you said that, Swin, I realize the, the other option is pronouncing it Cooks, which might also be appropriate, but it's Cucks, okay? And now here's the setup here. So the Cucks, it looks like, it's kind of hard to describe. I mean, it, it's a very, it, it almost looks like a, like a hard drive, maybe like an external hard drive, but it's just kind of like a thing with a couple USB ports and it sits there. This is the creation of former InfoWars reporter Millie Weaver and her partner, Gavin Wintz. And this is sort of like the Freedom Phone in the past. The Cucks vows to sort of free you from big tech. But while the Freedom Phone is pretty straightforward, I mean, it's a phone, the Cucks is a little unclear to me what it is. This has raised nearly $200,000. In what? In how long? I think over like a month or two. Okay. I have studied for hours. What is the Cucks? I emailed the Cucks Corporation to ask for an interview with Mr. Cucks himself, and I cannot find out what it is. So it's QUX, and it means <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Quantum UX User Experience. Okay. And then there's a picture. It, it, the website is all of it's like sock photos, and it says join the crowd, access more video, photo, audio, and podcast content than anywhere else using Cucks portals. Later on, it says. Portals are your gateway to videos, photos, podcasts, and more. So as, as best I can understand, the Cux is just like a thing you plug into your TV and go online, kind of like a Roku, perhaps. But it's free of big tech. Say, it has I'm no staring at a photo of it right now. I highly encourage our listeners to look this up and just, just, just try to figure out what this is or what it could be. It, could it, is it a DVR? Is it a... 
Is it a portable charger? Is it is it a external hard drive? I have no idea what this fucking thing is. It's just staring back at me like the abyss. And I know the listeners are like, well, it seems like they just made this segment up on the fly. But I have tried to find out what the Cux is, and it's impossible. So let me just tell you, though, if we don't know what it is, let's talk about the background of the people involved in it. So Millie Weaver was a lieutenant of Alex Jones's until last year when she was arrested for robbing her own mother, allegedly. And now, I, I believe her boyfriend, Gavin, was also arrested as well. He, he was arrested as part of this incident. Now, initially, she was coming out with one of these quote-unquote documentaries called Shadowgate. And the star of Shadowgate, by the way, would later become a key election fraud witness for Sidney Powell. So, so this is kind of what we're working with here. But so she was arrested, and she initially was like, well, I was clearly arrested by the deep state. They don't want Shadowgate to come out. It's too hot. But in fact, what came out was that she had allegedly stolen her mother's phone as part of a family dispute. And so look, I don't know. I don't think the deep state was involved in that. It seems as though kind of like a little, you know, a little tussle. And so Alex Jones cuts ties with her over this incident. And now, so she's kind of on her own. She's sort of been cut off from the rest of of the right-wing internet because the Shadowgate video implicated various Trump advisors claimed that they were deep state. So obviously that's not going to fly. But so now they're back with the cucks. And they're, like I said, I mean, they're, they're raising money. They've raised more than 170 grand with this. But you might say, Will, cuck obviously is a not a term of endearment, right? And in particular on the Trumpian right. Why would you call your product the cuck? Can you think of a reason, Swim? Is this a prank? No, it's real. It's real. Can you think of a fucking reason? Well, here's the reason. I have fallen into Gavin Wentz's, Millie's business partner and life partner. I've fallen into his trap here because a lot of people, like I said, they're kind of controversial figures even on the right. And so a lot of people have been saying, geez, why'd you call this thing the cucks, right? So he tweets, dear trolls and NPCs, knowing you would pronounce cucks as cucks, we went with the name. It serves as a troll bait and switch. (laughs) And then it says, you know, the real cucks are those who use big tech, essentially. And then he tweets, I picked it to troll NPCs like you. And of course... You know, they call people NPCs that they think are idiots. You know, and the explanation here is that in a video game, an NPC is a non-playable character. So essentially, people who are like robots, they just do what the mainstream media tells them are NPCs. And so he says, I picked this to better troll NPCs. The mark of a true cuck is letting big tech have access to all your data while getting sloppy seconds via Google ads. That's how good of a name it is. It's troll bait, too. And like, I can't stress enough. So this tweet includes three laughing, crying emojis rolling as well. That's how good of a name it is. It's troll bait. Knowing incels would call cucks cucks. We went with it. So this is like if you and I rebranded and renamed our podcast, just bad podcast. Don't listen. Yeah. And they would say, why would you choose that name? And it's like, wow, a true NPC would think this podcast stinks. <laughs> Laughing, crying emoji. So, you know, we're having fun here about cucks, but maybe the true cucks are us because we didn't make 170 grand on some box that doesn't do anything or doesn't, it, it can't explain what it does. Nevertheless, made uh, nearly 200 grand off of it. First of all, I love how this stupid fucking box actually does have a narrative tie-in to Donald Trump's attempts to kill democracy in America. That That's number one. Of course, this box had to have some sort of less than six degrees of Kevin Bacon to that broad Republican effort. Number two, almost $200,000 over the course of just a couple or a few weeks for nothing. This would make the uh, people behind the gigantic colossal Enron scam blush. Just you're making up the numbers and you're making all this money for less than nothing. Just absolutely nothing. It boggles the mind. It's completely unclear what it does. 
the I have to say though, I am enjoying this universe of right wing gadgetry. You know, I mentioned the Freedom Phone. The New York Times covered the Freedom Phone earlier this month. They did apparently an update. The Freedom Phone is no longer being made in China, or at least with its specific Chinese distributor. It's now being made as a cheapo phone for 500 bucks. Now, I believe in the United States or with a U.S. distributor. So the Freedom Phone's still out there. Now we have the Cucks. I think there's more of these ahead. Um, and, you know, I, I just can't wait to outfit my life as uh, the wire cutter guy for this kind of gear. I have a theory. I have a theory, finally, for what this is. I, I think we might conclude on this note. I'm looking at a branded photo from the website for the cuckolded man box, and I don't see any wires coming out the back of it. It's possible that there is a place to input it, but I don't see it. It is not plugged into anything. Is it possible that this is just a box that you plug your electronics <laughs> into? It doesn't go to anywhere, thus actually freeing you from the deep state and big tech corrupted internet because you can't be a slave to big tech or the deep state if you can't get online i do like the idea that you just plug it in and then it's don't worry jack dorsey can't see you now don't worry about it (laughs) it is the electronic version of moving to a cabin in the middle of the woods there is nothing more liberating than that i think the people who put this out and are marketing it for 99 dollars are geniuses and we are actually as you pointed out earlier the true cucks for talking shit about it. So in my efforts to find out what is inside the Cucks, I talked to a disgruntled former associate of the Cucks makers, who I believe claimed, if I recall correctly, I mean, this has been kind of a months-long saga, if I recall correctly, uh, said that he was somehow involved in its creation. And so I thought this was going to be kind of a freedom phone thing, where it's a thing from China that's sold at a huge markup. But he said, no, the Cucks is legitimate. It's really some innovative technology and I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, you know, he just couldn't explain it. So this guy was involved in the creation of the Cucks. He doesn't know. You know, I'm talking to like rogue Cucks inventors now. You know what might happen here, though, is maybe the joke's on us again. And it's going to turn out that this is a, a world-changing device. And soon we'll all be sitting our friends down in front of our Cucks for a night of entertainment. <laughs> Soon we'll all be cucks. And it does warm the coggles of my heart that your reporting beat puts you in a position where for the sake of your actual legitimate job, you have to track down rogue, disgruntled inventors of the cuckolded man box. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.